Good morning all, my name is Greg and I'm reading Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. <clears throat> Lord, you are right, <clears throat> excuse me, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness unfaithfulness to you, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because, because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the, the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people 
bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for your wickedness, to bring in everlasting and righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, no, sorry, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many of one sevens. In the middle of the sevens, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. We give thanks for this, the word of God. Thank you, Greg. Now, if you do have your Bibles with you, uh, keep it open to Daniel chapter 9. We will work our way through uh, at least most of this. Um, but it is a passage, like what we've heard from Pete, that reveals not only our own heart, but the heart of God. So let's, let's pray that we might understand. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on this passage, you help us see what our heart is really like before you and help us to see your heart of grace and compassion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we have in this passage is perhaps one of the great prayers of Scripture, this prayer of Daniel. It was Oswald Chambers who once said, Prayer is the most normal and useful thing. It is the practice of drawing on the grace of God. And that's why it makes so much sense for us who are believers, who are Christians, who consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, that prayer has that central place in our life. And this is a prayer to help us. You see, as we live our lives, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, as we reflect on what happens in the world, as we reflect on what happened in this past week, as we reflect on what happens even in our own hearts. And I suspect there are many of us here sitting here in the pews with hearts that are a bit torn, a bit troubled, distressed, distraught, confused, without peace. What do you do when our heart is like that? Well, you turn to God in prayer. It is the most normal thing. And that's what Daniel did here. 
You see, his life was so troubled, in distress, because this prayer, if you've noticed in verse 1, it is the first year of Darius, the king of Xerxes, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. And so what happened during that year? It was the year when prayer was banned, remember that, in chapter 6. It was the year when Daniel faced the lions. It was the year when he continued to pray as he has always done, three times a day, and this was perhaps one of those prayers. And so what do you do when your heart is so troubled? You turn to God in prayer, and that's what Daniel did here. And so Daniel, in the humility of his heart, he did just that. You see, what what happens when we pray to God, when we turn to God, when we open our hearts and we show it all to God? What does it say and reveal about our own hearts? It reveals a heart that is humble enough to recognize, I can't do it, but God can. It is not my will in life that I want, but it is God's will that I want. It is not my honor or glory, but it is God's honor and glory that I desire. That's what we say when we pray. But what was it here that troubled Daniel so much that it drove him to be fasting in sackcloth and ashes? You see, the content of his prayer, it's not so much what we often hear today. What are the types of prayers we hear? I come to God because I want. I want this fix, I want that, and I want more. But we see here is so different for Daniel. What was it that drove him to prayer? It was the word of God itself that drove him to his knees. And why? Because, see, as Daniel reflected on the word of God, it revealed to him the will of God for him and his people. He came to understand what the will of God was, and so to come to prayer is to align his will with God's will and his desire with God's desire. It is really to pray, as we've been taught as Christians by the Lord himself, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Daniel, you see, he reflected on the word of God, verse 2. Daniel understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem will last 70 years. And so when he came across that passage, he thought, 70 years will be in judgment. I've been here about 65 years now. And this place, it is not home. Our home, destroyed. Our temple, smashed. Lord, you said so seven years I'm praying according to your will. You said so. You see, him understanding the word of God helps him to understand the promises of God and drove him to prayer. And he does pray. But now do you notice how he started his prayer? It's how prayers should start. You see, when we come to God, who do we come to? When we come to God, we come to God. Not a mate, not a buddy. Not someone we look down to, not someone we look across to, not someone even just a bit above us, but up there in heaven. We come to God. We come to God on the right terms, which is, He is so big and I am so small. He is so holy and pure and I am not. He is so righteous, which means I am a sinner. And that's what Daniel does here. He comes to God recognizing God is God and I'm not. And he comes to God recognizing 
I'm a sinner and there's no point hiding. And the only right thing for me to do before the living God is to confess who I am. And that's what he did in verse 5. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and laws. Now, what was it that Daniel was confessing here? He's confessing completely, absolutely. We have sinned, God. But what was it that he was confessing? He said, as he was living in exile, as he was looking around the land, he's seeing our home devastated, our temple gone. We, your people, God, are living in exile. And he's saying, all of that and all of this, it is our fault. It is our sins. He did not come to God and say, look, God, this is all your fault. We shouldn't be here. But he confesses, we have sinned. You see, his sin was unqualified. And there is something that is so beautiful to his honesty here in such a confession. And I wonder when we do come to God, whether our confession sounds anything like Daniel's or do we confess at all? And I'm glad we did in our prayers today. You see, his confession is absolute. No ifs, no buts. Do, do we come to God and say, Lord, I know I showed a lack of self-control today, but Lord, you know all the pressures I'm under, all the stresses and strains I'm under, and I had the right to be angry. But, but no, Lord, I have sinned. Full stop. I have dishonored the name of Christ that I bear. It was out of Christian character. Have mercy on me. You see, there's something so beautiful and honest to a confession like that. Now, do you notice how Daniel's confession, if you notice, he used the words we all the way throughout, not I. You see, it was a corporate confession. It was corporate in nature, and everyone was included. We have sinned. We disobeyed. And no one is out of this. Everyone is included. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings. They were not excluded. Leaders, they were not excluded. Fathers and all the people of the land. See, no one got out of this. They were all included. He was praying a prayer on behalf of the whole nation. It is our sin. No one exempt. But yet, if you reflect on Daniel's life, shouldn't he be exempting himself from these sins? Because if it was anyone's sin, doesn't it sound a bit strange that he included himself in this? If it was anyone's sins, it was his parents' sin and their parents and their parents, it was why they were dragged into exile in the first place. He came as a teenager into the courts of Babylon. He wasn't responsible. It wasn't his and if anything, his character was impeccable. Even as a teenager, he would not eat the foods he was not uh, to eat. And not only that, over the 65 years, would not turn away from his allegiance to God first and foremost. And not only that, even when he was facing the lions, he would not stop praying. And so why did he include himself in the sins of the nation? 
Oh, the answer is simply because there is a corporate nature to sin. You see, there are individual sins. I sin, you sin. But there is also a corporate sin. The sins of his forebears were also his. The sins of the nation were also his. And it's perhaps something we, we fail to recognize in Western individualism, which prioritizes the individual above the community. But in the Bible, we see it over and over again. The sins of the fathers will affect generations to come. The sins of Adam are our sins as well. And so some sins are mine, but some are corporate, are ours. I mean, that's something to reflect on, isn't it? At our session meeting on Tuesday evening, when our elders met, we did some reflection on this part of Scripture, and it was a somber reflection. We reflected on, what are the sins of the Australian church? What do you think? What are the sins of even our church here in Surrey Hills? What would you say? Now, would it be too far of a stretch to say that perhaps one of the great sins of the church, of all the churches in the West, is that we have lost our distinctiveness? Can we still say we are the salt and light of the world? Such that when you look at the church and you look at the world, do we see any difference or do they just blend into one another? No difference in lifestyle, no difference in priorities, no difference in values, no difference in moral standard. Is that our sin as well? Or would it be too far of a stretch to say that perhaps one of the sins of even us corporately here in Surrey Hills is that we have lost, or maybe not lost, but softened the edges around that call to costly discipleship. That we've become ambivalent to the plight of the lost around us. That we've become complacent about what it means to carry the cross. That we're, we've become satisfied with a life that is a little lower than worthy of the gospel. And of course, I include myself in that. But as upon reflection, I, I thought, even as a pastor, it can be quite comfortable, but that must never become my idol. And so there are sins that are ours, and are there sins that are ours that we need to confess and repent of? We say it is wrong and we need to change. And are there sins that are ours that will affect the future generations? That they have to bear the responsibility of. You see, in, in much of life now, as the family unit is dismantled, what do you think that will leave the future generations? A group of individuals who live selfish lives. Is that something we bear now? And even on a national level, I mean, the sense of nations affects generations, doesn't it? Back in 2008, many of you will remember this, when the Prime Minister then, Kevin Rudd, he made a formal apology to the Australian's in Indigenous people, particularly the Stolen Generation. Remember hearing that? I remember hearing that. I was at Bible college at that time. And I thought, there is something good and right about that. There's something good and right about that. I think it was 
the former Archbishop of Sydney, Peter Jensen, who said, who said, if we benefit from the sins of the past, we better, better assume the responsibility for the sins of the past. And in a sense, that's what Daniel is doing here. In his unreserved confession, this is our sin. We stuffed up. It is our mistake. We acted wickedly. But more than that, he's not only recognizing their sin. He's recognizing something about God as well. He's saying that, God, you are righteous in judging us. This place we are in now, this exile, our home destroyed, the temple gone, but you were absolutely righteous. You did what you said you would do, and it is all our fault. The shame is ours. And that's what Daniel goes on to say, verse 7. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. Now at this point in his prayer, he's acknowledged God is powerful, God is righteous, and that is true. But if that is all we know about God, I suspect we'll all be so terrified to bring anything before God. We'll be so terrified to open our hearts before God because if he's righteous and he's powerful, we're in big, big trouble. What hope is there for us? But you see what else Daniel recognized about God. God is righteous, but he's also compassionate. I mean, if we do not know that God is compassionate, we will run away from God. But look at verse 9. Compassion and forgiveness belongs to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him. He says, because we can know and do know that God is compassionate and offers forgiveness, it means that even the darkest part of our souls can be exposed and open to God, knowing that he will be righteous, but he is also compassionate. I mean, if there is someone in the entire universe you can completely be honest with, it is God, knowing that you'll never be rejected. And in Daniel's beautiful prayer, he continues to confess without holding anything back. Verse 10, we've broken your law, we've refused to obey you. Verse 14, we have not obeyed him. Verse 15, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Confession after confession after confession. And so what was left for Daniel to do at the very end? I'm a terrible man. We are a nation that have broken your laws. What can you do after you've exposed yourself, exposed your filth and your dirt before God? Well, you plead for mercy. I'm a sinner in the hands of the powerful God. What can I do but plead for mercy? And notice what he appeals to here. God have mercy not because I deserve it, verse 18. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts. It's not because of us, but based on your abundant compassion. Now, why would God have mercy and compassion? Why would God act in such a way? Now, look at the audacity he had in the final words of his prayer. How could anyone have that courage to speak these words to God. In fact, you can only speak these words if you have an intimate relationship with God. Look at verse 19. Lord, hear. 
Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. This is speaking to the God of the entire universe. But yet in the kindness and mercy of God, that is what God wants from us and what God welcomes. And then he goes on, My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. God, answer my prayer. Answer our prayers, not for our sake, not for our name, but for your sake, because your honor is being robbed. Your city, your people who bear your name, they are left humiliated, and the nations are dragging your name through the mud. Lord, for your honor, for your sake, have mercy, forgive, and act. You see, Daniel started this prayer with such a troubled heart. His heart was humble enough to turn to God and to confess. And now he ends with this plea of mercy and he waits. And like all prayers, God always answers. And God will always answer, though it does not mean God will answer the way we want and when we want. But here we see God answered Daniel's prayer straight away to restore his hope. Before he even finished praying, God had already sent his angel to answer his prayer with a vision. This is where the vision comes in now. Now these next few verses, from verses 20 onwards, they've been described by many theologians, one in particular, Edward Young, as one of the most difficult in all of the Old Testament. And the interpretations which have been offered are almost legion, which means this is a difficult part of Scripture. So what does that mean? We're out of time. <laughs> no, we will work hard to try to understand it. What we understand here, the way we are to understand this part of, of Scripture, is that it is an answer to Daniel's prayer. So remember what Daniel prayed for. He wanted God to acknowledge that they are sinners, which God sees and God has judged them, but he's pleading for mercy. That was his prayer. And this vision is an answer to that prayer. You see, what we see here is God's promise in how he will show mercy and forgiveness and restore his people. They ask for, restore us, give us forgiveness, show us mercy. God says, I will, and this is the way. But he'll do it in a way far more than what Daniel asked for. And it will cost a whole lot more than what Daniel dreamed of. And that's where we come here to this vision, this language now. Remember in visions, a lot of numbers are used. It takes place in a period of 77s. Do you notice that before? 77s. Now what does that mean? Now this is where the scholars get all creative and perform all sorts of calculations and permutations and combinations that you've probably heard quite a few of them. Working out what does this mean? What are the 77s and these different numbers? Often it's translated as 70 weeks, but the weeks are interpreted as years. A bit confusing? Well, yes, that's why they are legion. But how are we meant to understand this? Well, what we are told here is that what will take place during the 77s, it will be the answer to Daniel's prayer. Transgressions will end. Their sins will be dealt with. Their wickedness will be atoned for, which means there will be a way for God to execute his judgment on sin. 
but yet at the same time for them not to be destroyed. And that's what we see, verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for weakness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And so what Daniel prays for, God will grant, and it is this period of 77s, whatever that means. I'll try to put in a diagram for you. So the whole period of what God will do in answer to Daniel's prayer, 77s. But how would God make that happen? What will take place for there to be atonement, that is, for God to execute his wrath upon sin, yet at the same time for them not to be destroyed? Well, this is where there are so many different views, but this is what I think is happening. This period of 77s, as we're told here in this vision, is broken up to three. You've got the seven sevens, you've got the 62 sevens, and you've got the one seven. And so if you do the maths, what is it? Seven plus 62 plus one equals 70. What was Daniel asking for? He was asking for restoration. Bring us back from exile to our city. To rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. That was what he asked for. Well, that was exactly what happened in the first bit, the seven sevens. And so verse 25, have a look. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that will happen, and we move on, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And so the first period of restoration, it did happen. It happened a year later when Cyrus, the king, issued a decree. You can return. You can return and build your city, rebuild it, rebuild your temple, but it will be a time where you'll still face opposition. And we see that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But yet we haven't yet answered the question of how will God deal with their sin? Can God just forgive their sins and just completely sweep it under the carpet? Well, he can't. And that's why we read here, at the end of the 62 sevens, the anointed one will come. And so this is the next period, whatever that period is. And who is the anointed one? Well, listen to what happens to him, and it's not too hard to work out. Look at verse 26 now. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. Now, where might you have read that before? I mean, we did Isaiah not too many years ago, but the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who will be cut off from the land of the living. You see, the talk about the anointed one is the same word for Messiah. It's the same word for Christ. And here it is talking about Jesus Christ. You see, Daniel prayed that God will deal with their sin and God's way for dealing with their sin is the coming of the anointed one, the one on whom he'll pour his wrath so that they might experience mercy. And how did that happen? Well, that happened with the coming of Jesus. You see, what's happening here was a bit like for Daniel. After the 77th period, he climbs a mountain and he gets to see what God has done or will do the city will be restored the temple rebuilt 
But then when he gets onto that peak, he sees another mightier mountain further away, centuries away, and on that mountain is the Messiah on the cross. And that's what we're meant to picture here. And this takes place in the final 1-7 period. The death of Jesus, we read, will establish a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for 1-7. And then we read on, verse 27, in the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, what do you think that means? Well, that verse there is pregnant with meaning. Because if we see the anointed one as the coming of the Messiah, then the death of Jesus must end all sacrifice, and it did. No longer will animal sacrifices be needed, because he's the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And no longer will the physical temple be needed, for he will be the true temple of God. And that's why Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The old order of things will be gone, There will be forgiveness, a new covenant, and that was what Daniel was seeking to be fulfilled in the Messiah. In fact, also bound up in this vision, we read the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, verse 26, the end of sacrifice, verse 27. Perhaps bound up in that vision was what actually took place in 70 AD when the temple was completely physically destroyed. The city of Jerusalem sacked by Rome. It was like the final nails on the coffin of sacrifices. If the death of Jesus was not enough, then after 70 AD, even if you want to offer sacrifices, you can't. Go to, go to Jerusalem. Want to offer? You can't. There's no temple because there is no need for one. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter said, Jesus died for sins once and for all. It is done. That is how God answered Daniel's prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but if we've, been, we've been working through Daniel, but it's just amazing because early in Daniel 7, we remember reading of the Son of Man, the divine figure with all power and authority. And here we read of the anointed one. And we're meant to be questioning, is this the same figure? Well, we know it is. And that is why I think the abomination that causes desolation at the last bit of this passage is referring to that same cross event. Because what is more abominable in all of history, what violates and defies God more than seeing his son crucified at the hands of wicked men. But that was what it takes. Daniel coming to God. Hearts open. We have sinned. Deal with it, deal with it, God. And how will God deal with it? With it? With his own son. And so we see how in this prayer, Daniel began, hearts troubled, hearts humbled. I can't hide from God. My heart is exposed. We have sinned. God, deal with it. And how does God answer? It is by his own son. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And in his death and resurrection, one life for all. And he died so that we might have peace with God. You see how the the story of this chapter has gone? We see the heart of Daniel, a sinner in need of mercy. But we also see the heart of God, 
the God who's so willing to offer mercy and forgiveness, but it cost him his son. And that is what we see, so that we can now have peace with God. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we do confess, we know that forgiveness is sure because of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, who was the one who was cut off from the living to end all sacrifices by his own sacrifice. And so we thank you, Lord, for that peace which is ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.